the American idea is pleased to bring you a very special episode, uh, one that really focuses on the importance of Ashbrook's work, especially the impact of an education. At Ashbrook, we really believe, as you'll hear, the story of Charles and Ian is a story of the cultivation of the heart and mind. That's what we really believe at Ashbrook. That's what education is. It's not a transaction. It's not just giving people information to students and they spit it back out to us. It's a relationship. It's a conversation in which each side participates and both pursue the truth together. I think you're going to find as you listen to Charles and Ian, that's exactly the kind of relationship they had. It's exactly the kind of education Ashbrook believes in and that we try to carry out every day in our programs for students, teachers, and citizens. So thank you again for joining us for this very special episode. Well, hi, I'm Charles Martindell. I'm the uh, Graduate Programs Resource Manager here with Ashbrook, a uh, position that uh, I only just started uh, back in August of 2022. And before that, I was a high school teacher in Marion, Ohio uh, from 2007 up through uh, 2022. So uh, I discovered the Ashbrook program as a teacher. I, I, I took the uh, I got my my master's degree, Master of Arts in American History and Government, the MAG degree, and um, I so came back to to help them with their teacher programs. And I have here with me one of my former students from uh, from the high school I taught at, Ian Kiefer. Uh, Ian, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, Mr. Martindell. Happy to be here. Uh, thank you for the invitation to join you. Uh, as Mr. Martindell said, um, I was his student of, in 2012 and 2014, I think, or 2013, two different classes. But um, he was my also my mock trial coach for three years. And um, I am a graduate of Pleasant High School in 2014, Ashland University, with a degree in political science and history and Ashbrook Scholar in 2018, and a recent graduate of Capital Law School this year, 2023. All right. And uh, it is fine for you to call me Charles if you want to. You don't have to keep calling oh, me Mr. Martin anymore. I wasn't sure. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, so I, I was kind of curious about, I first met you as a freshman when you, when you joined Mock Trial. Uh, I did not teach freshmen. And that was a year where it really helped me understand that I had no interest in teaching freshmen. Um, freshmen tended to be, as you were at that year, uh, a bit more ornery than I was used to. Um, and you know, we got to know each other pretty well over the years. But it was kind of—it's kind of funny because I—I met you when I was midway through my master's degree here at Ashland, and and so the the mag degree, um, I've I've said many times, really like changed how I taught. And I can't remember exactly when I made like a very like. Uh, dedicated change with my teaching like practices where I, I, I stopped using worksheets with the textbooks and, and, and I started doing more primary sources. So, so I know I had you for civics your sophomore year and world studies your junior year and world studies is where I really kind of focused on those changes with primary sources and stuff. Was I teaching with primary sources when you were there or haven't, I, I know you weren't there when I started teaching the college classes, but, but I, I couldn't, couldn't remember, you know, what kind of teacher I was when, when, when I had you. Sure. Yeah, you were still an amazing teacher, even though we didn't use primary sources when I, and when I was in school. I know that at that point, you had started talking about the program and how you're going to start shifting. But I still remember uh, going over the worksheets uh, from the book. And even despite that, I thought they were very helpful, just the way that you taught even without the primary sources. 
what took you toward Ashland, toward the, the, like, I know I was a fan of the master's program that I was at, and so I would often encourage my students to do it, but um, I know your mom also went to Ashland. I don't know if she was a Ashbrook scholar, but um, what, what kind of attracted you to, to this program here? Yeah, so my mom was an Ashbrook scholar, and I'm proud to say that according to Ben Conkle, I'm the first legacy of a, of a, a child, not a brother or sister, but the first like second generation Ashbrook scholar. So I honestly, I didn't really have anything that I was looking for in a college before I started looking. I, did, I just knew I wanted to go to a smaller school because Pleasant's particularly small. And I met with Dr. Schramm uh, whenever I went to tour the school and ever since that conversation, I knew that Ashland was where I wanted to be. I just saw the campus and saw what they had to offer. And I was just very excited to learn in this particular way and go to a school that was known uh, for history and political science. And just because I know a lot of people aren't interested in those topics at high school. And I think that if we taught more like Ashbrook teaches, more people would be interested because it's not A, B, C, it's just weaving all these different concepts together and how you really learn how everything is interconnected from world history to economics to like politics and religion and everything in between. So that's kind of how I got my start there. Did Ashbrook have the... Um political economy major when you were here? Or, or I, I know that's somewhat more recent that they added that. Yeah, that came around, I think, my junior or senior year. So whenever that first began, there was only one class and I did not take it. So I, I was aware of the program, but I did not participate. Okay. Yeah, I could, like your the way you described that, kind of like the weaving of all these different threads together, um, I uh, just made me think about that that major that they started to offer, and I because I had the same thought when when I heard that they were doing that. It's like, oh, that's that's pretty cool. Like the the idea of you know the, the marriage of politics and economics um, is uh, is not something that you can get in, in very many places. I'm I'm thinking about high school seniors trying to decide where they go to college, um, and they might not be familiar with Ashbrook or the Ashbrook Scholar Program, or even with our. Um, uh, like how we teach things here with, you know, discussions about primary sources. Do you have any good like stories or or anything that you think might illustrate to an outsider um, what makes this program special? What, what you know, what makes it something that would be attractive to uh, to a high school senior that's that's trying to make these decisions? Sure. I, I think that my perspective is a little little unique just because I, I know I'm weird and like those like topics that not everyone does. But um, I think that a good example was I was talking with one of my friends who graduated from Kent State, and she was telling me about her political science experience and how they just learned a lot of political theory, like political science theory, not necessarily um, like Hobbes and Locke or something like that, but like critical race theory and gender theory and peace theory. And whenever she was telling me those things, I had no clue what she was talking about. And I really don't think that I needed to to understand the conversation. Just so I think that having this really good base of knowing where we come from as a country and our political system really helps you understand other things that you won't think are related. And I think I'm going to use that term like interrelation a lot through this conversation. I just think it's very helpful that have a solid basis of understanding and not necessarily of what to think, but how to think and how to read and analyze and come to your own conclusions. So I think that uh, the only advice that I have for them is to say, like, if that's something you want, that's definitely going to challenge you. And it's not going to be just um, filling out a worksheet and then turning it in a class. Like you're going to read 50 pages for the next class the next day. And if you don't read it, then you're just behind and the, the professors aren't going to drag you along with them. 
Um, they're definitely going to encourage you and try to teach you, but it's ultimately up to you. And if that's the kind of learning experience that you want, uh, you just have to grab it by the reins and take full advantage of it. I remember Dr. Schramm in my freshman interview asked me if I like to read. I said, well, not, not really, not for fun. And he said, like, well, I'm not sure if this is going to be for you. Cause like we just do a lot of reading and um, I, he definitely was right. And I, I liked to read before, but now I like it even more. And um, yeah. So, so that's interesting. Like your, um, your story about your friend from Kent state reminded me of it, 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 a standard example that people bring up the Chesterton Chesterton's fence of um you know this uh this you know thought experiment about you know how do you want to make reforms how do you want to make changes uh and if you you find this fence in in the you know middle of a field and you don't know why it's there then I'm not going to let you tear it down you know because because you don't know why it's there um you know go home think about it for a little bit if you can figure out why it exists in the first place then we can talk about what changes you would make to it or or you know about tearing it down or whatever and and it, so it just kind of like the the idea of a lot of you know the the critical theories seems to be a lot about tearing things down and they don't know they don't know why they were built in the first place they don't understand kind of the foundations that that were laid um and maybe a better understanding of some of those foundations could could help lead to some smarter reforms right if, if a change needs to happen know why it's there in the first place and why it's structured the way it is um, and I agree with you. I think I think you know, like diving straight into the primary sources uh, is is it really opened up a whole world for me to understand better um, those kinds of foundations uh, before before just jumping into like, well, I don't know why this is here, so I just want to get rid of it, you know. Yeah, and that that gives me two thoughts. So the first one being um, like reading Thomas Jefferson as an example. Like some people look at him, and including myself, as a problematic historical figure in hindsight. But at the time, like he was just viewed as this um, like statesman and just great writer. And I don't want to take anything away from his writing or what he did for our country. But I just think that Ashbrook is the perfect example of a place that brings up someone like that, but also doesn't just gloss over some of the more um, problematic aspects of the time. And like we use the term like, oh, like it was a different time back then. And that's definitely true. But Ashbrook doesn't in the next breath just gloss over it. Like they fully accept right. that, but also they take in the good with the bad. And then the next yeah. thought is I actually took critical race theory in law school. And one of our first sources was the 1619 project. And I wish that they would teach that at Ashland just because I think that there are some decent things that they bring up that are points in there. But there's also so many historical things you can point to to counter all of the things that they say in there. So like they bring up a lot of really good points about um, like the laws that were founded that kind of um, put black Americans into servitude or second class citizenship. But then they don't talk about how some people within their own movement were kind of using those framework to their advantage and how you can use it. They like not necessarily that it was a good thing that these things happened, but because of them, they were able to grow. And like we we moved on from that as a nation. So I think yeah, that I think, um, yeah, is that that uh, specifically the 1619 project, uh, the framing of it from one of the professors I had in the MAG program here, um, Lucas Morell, I think he teaches at Washington Lee, mm -hmm. Washington and Lee University. Um, he, you know, he had several, you know, publications after the 1619 project, and and he kind of framed it as the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and so, like, you know, there are parts of it that that he thinks are good, parts of it that he doesn't think are good, and parts that are, are just like 
you know, an abuse of history um, and, and just getting the historical record wrong. And so kind of like with that framing, I started to assign that with my high school students when we, we had a whole section uh, of my advanced gov class that was basically centered on the founding and the existence of slavery. And, you know, like just trying to wrestle with that, as you said earlier, just that messy history. Um, and so I would include, you know, the, the lead essay from the 1619 project as, as a, you know, it's a great source for discussion um, to, to kind of look at, you know, the idea of historiography of like how, how people remember history or study history. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I thought it was, it was definitely worthwhile. And, and again, it's just one of those things where like having the good solid foundation lets me contextualize that kind of information um, in a way that, that. I feel like is is empowering to me like I don't have to rely on you know how somebody else is going to uh explain what the 1619 project is like I can read it for myself and I've read enough of Thomas Jefferson and I've read enough of Frederick Douglass um to to kind of get this idea is like well you know they they have a point here but but like I just flat out disagree with how they've characterized you know for example Abraham Lincoln's views on on this kind of stuff like I just mm -hmm. don't you know I don't think that uh that they got it right there. And, and so I, I agree. I, I think it's um, that the kind of relationship, like the whole picture of, you know, as you said, Thomas Jefferson, the, the good and the bad, um, it really does create like a rich um, version of history that you can just, you know, it's it, it's easy to kind of sink your teeth into it and just stay there for, for a long time and wrestle with some really challenging and really thought provoking um, uh, contradictions and, 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 you know, all all sorts of lessons about the human condition yeah for sure i think the the good bad and the ugly is a great way to put it and i think that my uh, ashbrook education really empowered me to have conversations that other students couldn't i don't i'm not trying to toot my own horn but just like they didn't understand some of the points i was trying to make because they hadn't read what i had read and like me trying to explain like four years worth of education to them in like a five second conversation is, is really hard so i could say like oh i can refute this point based on like this document and then they just don't they're like oh, okay because they just don't know what i'm referring to so yeah i think that that's a really good point i think that ashland really uh, equipped me to kind of wrestle as you said with those topics that might kind of be counter to um how we want to feel about things whenever we're faced with something that um is hard and we might not necessarily agree with right away and just to come back and either say oh yeah i agree with that or come back and say like no i really don't think that they hit that on the head there do you ever listen to the advisory opinions podcast with David French and Sarah Isker? It's a legal, not. it's a, a legal podcast. They, they do a lot of like Supreme Court watch kind of stuff, but they, they also talk about law school. Um, and, and they were both uh, members of the Federalist Society when they went to law school. And, and so they talked about how, um, they think that, you know, members of FedSoc or, or conservative students in general, um, kind of having a, a built-in advantage um when it comes to debating with more leftist or progressive uh students i think mostly in the context of law school or, or outside of uh you know practicing law um because they in order to succeed they're in the, such a minority in a law school they need to be they need to learn how to speak the you know both languages basically they can speak conservative uh, language mm -hmm. intelligently and they can speak liberal language in intelligently and the liberal students tend to struggle when it comes like they don't they're not forced to wrestle with the conservative idea like they can make it through law school in in 
this is a, an exaggeration, but you know, for illustrative purposes, an echo chamber without ever having to really wrestle with um, uh, opposing viewpoints. Did you kind of find that that like was that one of the things that that you felt by by Ashbrook's kind of like big picture approach of of really studying the good and the bad of of history? Did it help you in in that sense with with law school and, and being able to speak you know both of those languages? Yeah, I think that me having kind of as you said that like bilingual like kind of understanding both sides i was able to approach things differently and say like oh i understand where you're coming from here but what about this and then i was always able to kind of more rationalize the what about that they would bring up but whenever i would say something it was something that they hadn't heard because they haven't had those conversations so they didn't know how to respond and it just kind of like died there and that's really sad because even my more liberal friends in ashbrook like we would have really good conversations just because they were able to kind of meet me where I was and I would do the same for them. Even if we didn't agree on something, it was a fruitful conversation instead of just saying, oh, X is X is bad. End of story. Right. So yeah. I, I definitely think that 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 was a, a bonus that um, I did not see a lot of my classmates have. And whenever we had our first like conservative professor, like quote unquote conservative, like outwardly, a lot of the more liberal students like try to challenge him and they just couldn't because they like only had one side of the story as as I understand it. So I, I disagreed with this professor about one of his, one of the cases we were discussing. And then he said the Supreme Court quoted him. So I showed up pretty quickly whenever <laughs> that happened. Yeah. <laughs> Um, did you and your classmates at law school ever have discussions about um, some of the, like in the last year or so, there have been some pretty high profile um, like law school protests where the students shouting down speakers and stuff like that. I, my my assumption is that, you know, you know, Midwest small law school, like capital school isn't going to have the same kind of dynamics there as, as some of the places. But did you guys ever see any kinds of like hints of that in, in capital or would you say that you guys were um, kind of looking at that as as outsiders the way that I would have been looking at it as as an outsider just yeah de definitely more the latter even though um capital is a more liberal school than some other like law schools um there the students were more or less receptive to all the ideas and no one really was shouting anyone down we had some difficult conversations in some of my constitutional law classes um but besides that I, I was really fortunate in that the students were more or less respectful and um, the only times that something like that would happen is if at the end of class, a student would try to challenge a teacher. So it was more like a respectful academic way of doing it versus just shouting someone down. So before before law school, but after Ashland, you spent some time working in uh, uh, the General Assembly or or maybe with as an aide to, a um, you know, one of our one of our state legislature legislators. Um, Tell me a little bit about that. What what were you what were you doing in between in between those two times of your life? Sure. So in December of 2018, I started working as a leg who was it, a fellow for the Legislative Service Commission. So I worked for four senators. And then in October of the following year, I started working full time for one senator and I had started law school in the fall. So in that period, I was clerking various committees, um, kind of just like learning a little bit about everything and going from there. And that, that's kind of, I took my gap year, not intentionally, because I wasn't necessarily sure what I wanted to do, um, but I eventually realized that I wanted to go to law school just to perceive, receive the, that kind of education and kind of move away from politics and more towards law. So you, so your first year of law school did not overlap with your year as, as a staffer for the Senator. Is that right? It, like you had a, a year of a staffer or, or did they, did they overlap? 
So they, they overlapped. I did night school. So I worked um, as, a, as a legislative aide for Senator Steve Wilson for um, my entire law school career up until uh, February of this year, where I started working for the, the Public Utilities Commission. Okay. So so then I'm, I'm curious about your experience. Uh, I know the, the old saying that for law school, the three years of law school, the first year they uh, scare you to death, the second year they work you to death, and the third year they bore you to death. Um, how did that, how did, how did you find that, that those three years, I guess, while you still had that, the job working for the Senator? I, I would 100% agree. And as a night student, ours was four years. So it was kind of like one and two were essentially your first year as if we were to do okay. full time. So I kind of had like to, I extended the, the pain a little bit, but that's, that's definitely true. And I think that I had an advantage compared to some of my other classmates who didn't have to read as much in undergrad or had been removed from school for a long time because I was just used to only reading and like writing papers. So law school is 100% different than undergrad, at least in my experience at Ashland, the way that they teach. Cause I think, I, I'm pretty sure this was Dr. Schramm. I don't wanna misattribute the quote, but he said that um, like law school teaches you what to think, not how to think. And that's why he doesn't want you to go. He doesn't recommend it because he wants you to uh, like learn how to think as opposed to what to yeah, think. Yeah, that, that surprises me. Cause I always thought that the whole like, like, you know, Ashbrook's, um, I don't know, Socratic style of of having seminar discussions where, you know, they're they're just trying to uh, um, dive deep into a document. I always thought that that was kind of inspired by traditional like law school uh, approaches to things. Um, so so that's interesting. I did not I, I would not have expected that. Do you do you think that oh, I guess you kind of mentioned that that you, you felt like the Ashbrook experience kind of prepared you, uh, at, at least with the, the amount of reading that you had to do in, in law school? Um, did you ever have any classes with uh, Professor Sikinga? I did. I had him my sophomore year, and I was supposed to have him again my senior year, but he went on sabbatical, so I had Dr. Burkett okay. for human being and citizen. But yeah, I did have Dr. Sikinga. For what For what class did you have him in? I, f I forget what it's called, but it's the, the second year political science class that you take okay. at Ashbrook. Did you send me your one of your papers uh, to look over for that class? I think I did. I don't remember if it was so, that one or because I, I think one. I was teaching. I think I, I I by that time I was teaching Ashlyn's class and and they sent me his syllabus to uh, to do um, for that class. But I, I the reason why I bring him up specifically is I, in the MAG program he teaches the Supreme Court class. He teaches the fourth, mm. like like very law based classes. Um, so I was curious to hear from your your experience with him. And having gone through law school, like, like in my mind, he seems like, and and you know, he's going to be listening to this to uh, to <laughs> later, but um, I don't want to insult him. He seems like more of a law professor, um, it, like like Mag's version of of a law professor, just because of of the the topics that he specializes in and the types of assignments he has people do. Like he has he has his uh, students write. Uh, a Supreme Court opinion for for you know the the Supreme Court class and um, so I I didn't know if you had any experience where you know like having him as a professor for undergrad and then seeing law professors in action if if there was a similarity like like what I'm imagining in my head or not yeah so uh, I didn't necessarily have that experience with him with him per se but I did have it with my constitutional rights and constitutional powers class so in hindsight, he might have taught one of those. I can't remember, but I know that Dr. Stevens was the one who that I remember as my teacher or my professor for that. Um, and I definitely think that that kind of was a good intro into what to expect for law school because we read the cases very much the same in the briefs that we had to do, even though they were a lot shorter than law school briefs, they did encapsulate the same kinds of things. So it taught me really what to look for and um, kind of like how to read the cases. 
Okay. You know, it, with your experience in the Legislative Service Commission, um, working for Senator Wilson, um, I, I know that you you decided to kind of move away from politics. But while you were there, you know, in in the midst of all that kind of stuff, were there any like moments where you were kind of like struck, like, wow, this is really cool what I'm getting to do, or like things that you were a part of that became a law or that, you know, anything like that, that you you felt like you got to see up close or maybe even shape uh, the outcome of something that um, that I don't know, you're going to just keep keep with you for the rest of your life, even if you don't go back to politics. Yeah, definitely. I think that that kind of have a twofold answer for that. One of them is in constituent services, and that was one of my main jobs my first couple years. And I think that um, people forget that the government doesn't just make the laws, they can also help you when things go wrong. And, and there are only certain things that they can do. But if it's within the government's power, it was very fulfilling to be able to help people who were really struggling. And you could you could tell over the phone, or via email how exacerbated they were, and that they're just at the end of their rope. So being able to help people and get and like see that that positively affected them was was really beneficial to me, I think, especially it kind of made up for the, the phone calls that didn't go so well and um, that people weren't exactly happy. And then secondly, Senate, Senator Wilson, he had been in the legislature for, I think, five years before I got to work in his office. And since his first year, he had been trying to pass a financial literacy bill that required everyone to take at least I think it's one credit. I think it's a half hour of financial literacy in Ohio. And that passed whenever, I think, in my second or third year working for him. So it was just really cool to see him from the beginning and how much work he put into that. And he really brought in people from all sides to say, like, this is what's going to work. This is what's not. Because he he had a banking background. So he knew what he wanted to do, but he didn't know how to do it. And he's the perfect example of someone who would uh, listen to criticism, even if like something was his baby and he really wanted it to go a certain way. If it wasn't going to work, then it wasn't going to work. And he wasn't just going to force it through. So I was I was very lucky to be a part of that and work with him to to see financial literacy be required in Ohio. You think, like thinking back again to when I knew you in high school, um, you know, you're a senior in 2014. Um, kind of looking ahead, how much of of what you end up doing between then and now do you think was, would have would have surprised you know Ian as a, a senior in high school and, and how much do you think like no this is like you didn't maybe not know the specifics of what you wanted but but you kind of knew the direction um uh from from that point on yeah I think that um it's closer to the latter I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do I just knew like kind of the area I wanted to go in and uh, Ashlyn did a really good job of bringing in people who were in who were graduated and had job opportunities and they presented them like, hey, I work for X. Here's how you can apply and stuff like that. Was law school always something that you figured was was in the realm of possibility or is that something that you you kind of, um, you know, settled on during your during your years in Ashbrook or not? Definitely. So I don't think that uh, 2014 Ian would be surprised that I graduated from law school. Um, because I really enjoyed mock trial and how um, I, I knew how the law kind of started to operate. And I knew that that was what I wanted to get into based on my constitutional law classes or constitution powers and rights classes and civics. I really enjoyed stuff like that. So I don't think that I would necessarily be surprised that I ended up here. But in hindsight, I guess I kind of really didn't have a plan. So I'm kind of surprised at how well it turned out. But 2014, Ian definitely been like, yeah, like we're going to do all that stuff. So if, if he would look at my resume now, I don't think he would be surprised, but just kind of getting here was um, a journey that I, I didn't necessarily 
see coming. I'll put it that way. So with with Ashbrook kind of bringing in um, people of different careers or whatever to talk to the the Ashbrook scholars, uh, what were some of the some of the ones that stick out in your mind as like, you know, oh that's interesting. I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have considered a career in that that kind of a thing or or. Yeah, I think that the LSE fellowship that I did was a great example because I did not know that that existed. I didn't know how people got into working for the government. So whenever the alumni would alumnus would come back and explain what they were doing and how to apply, that really opened up my eyes to the possibility of like, oh, this is how you get a job after college. And these people did it and they're just kind of are like presenting the different options because you just don't know what options are available, I think, until you do. So I definitely being exposed to that and other opportunities made me realize what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. I don't remember exactly what it was, but some uh, find, I think it was like a economics think tank came in and I was like, I definitely don't want to do that. So no shade to anyone who is interested in that. We, we need all kinds of, of people doing different things. But I, whenever the LSE fellows came, I knew that that was something that I was more interested in. Uh, so what's next for you then? What, what are you, what are you planning on doing? Uh, here in the in the next chapter of your life. Yeah, so I started working for the Public Utilities Commission in February. I'm a commissioner's aide, so I plan on staying there at least for another year. Um, I'm studying for the bar right now to take that in July. So um, even after I pass that, either in July or whenever, you know, it's it's fingers but, crossed. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. You know, you just got to throw your your best effort at it. But um, yeah, after I after I pass the bar, I want to learn more about the utility space because definitely something that I'm interested in and then probably move on to private practice after that if I'm lucky. But um, I'll definitely at least be in the space for the next couple of years. Do you think you'll ever uh, uh, hook up with a, a school that has a mock trial team to be their, their lawyer advisor? I, I have thought about that, actually. I thought about um, like what kind of options are available. I currently live in Columbus, so I know there's lots of schools around here. And I remember when Pleasant used to go to Westerville, it was a 50-50 shot if they were going to run all over us or we were going to run all over them. <laughs> so yeah. it's good to know that um, little old Marion, Ohio, our, our mock trial team was able to hold it up with the bigger schools. We had some we had some good years there for, for mock trial. That's for we sure, sure did. Yeah. And and anyone listening, if your parents tell you you're good at arguing, so you should go to law school, that is terrible advice. That is not what law school is. If you <laughs> find yourself in an argument in law school, you're doing something very wrong. So just go go to law school if you want to practice law. And um, that's my best advice. I, I will say, though, if for for students listening that that are considering a, a um, career in law or maybe parents who have, you know, school age students that uh, they're not really sure. If your school has a mock trial team, or if there's one in the area, have them have them try it out because it really does uh, make the law accessible in ways I, I think a lot of people don't expect. Um, you know, law school to be something that they could handle, uh, and then you know, it, I think more people can if if they approach it with the right with the right way. And I think mock trial does a good job with that. I would 100% agree. Yeah, you'd be surprised at what you can accomplish, even if it's something that you you don't think you're capable of. It's just by sitting down and taking the time and surrounding yourself with people who are similarly minded. And if you want to figure something out, uh, I think mock trial is a great way to enhance your problem solving skills. And you'll really realize if you like it or not. Do you think having a couple of years of being in mock trial and, and like making a case to, you know, a, a grown up who's a judge, um, did that did that help prepare you for uh, for your uh, interview with Dr. Schramm, you know, before you became an Ashbrook scholar to, to do that? I definitely felt more comfortable uh, with my mock trial experience because you put yourself in those uncomfortable situations where you ask someone 
like, hey, like, like your your statement says this, and then they say something completely different. Like, you know, like you might have them on the ropes, but you feel on the ropes because, you know, you're, you don't know how to move forward. And I think that mock trial really teaches you how to remain calm in situations that you don't expect. And that definitely helped me with my interview with Dr. Schramm and then interviews in the future as well. He was such like a, a towering figure um, that like I, I I knew him as an adult and uh, and I had some conversation, very wonderful person, you know, obviously. Um, but I just try to imagine myself as a high school student, you know, sitting down with him one on one. It's like banging and, the table and everything. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, that would be that would be quite intimidating, I would think. So no, I'm glad I'm glad that uh, that you felt at least comfortable enough to fake comfort. Um, and, exactly. And that you were able to uh, to get into the Ashbrook Scholar Program too from it. Yeah, me too. It was it was definitely I think it's one of the best things I did in my life was was doing the Ashbrook program because I could have gotten a political science or history degree almost anywhere. But I think that I was uniquely prepared for life's challenges and especially in the political climate that we see ourselves now um, with lots of like just talking past each other. I think that without that, I don't know if I'd be able to not fall into that trap because it was very conversation based. And yeah. it's lots of like, we, you have to stop and listen. Like, even if someone says something you disagree with, that doesn't mean just like cut in and tell them that they're wrong. Just like listen, take in their whole message. Cause then they might come back and refute themselves or um, kind of backtrack on their own. So, you know, it's, it's lots of just listening and understanding and meeting people where they are. I think that's a really great point. Like, um, and, and I, I know exactly what you mean too, because I, I felt like my classes at Ashland kind of prepared me in the same way, especially like as a teacher, if I'm teaching high school students, you know, how to talk to each other and how to disagree, um, just having that experience of you're in a you're in a room together and and you're developing a relationship with each other. And as you said, like meeting somebody where they are, if you want them to join you, you've got to be able to, to you know, find them so that they can they can come with you and and uh and yeah, the, the, this approach of of the discussions about uh, about these documents it really kind of helps facilitate that idea that you're learning together when you when you approach learning like this, where you're you're in a room together and you're uh, you're you're developing this kind of relationship to learn what each other believes and and also what the person that you're reading believes. Um, it just kind of has this way of building a community and and making you understand that it's okay to disagree with each other and, and or as as a lot of the professors here say when you're going to disagree do it agreeably right like you don't have to you don't have to argue and, and yell at each other you know students are are debating bills and and you know they're they're going to write a, a bill about gun control or about abortion like how do you have a civil disagreement about those emotionally charged topics and yeah i i agree with you i think that something really important about doing that well and and you know, treating, I, I guess, to, to, to use another cliche from our mag classes, uh, each classroom is kind of like its own little mini republic, right? Everybody's there as, a, as an equal and, and they're there to, uh, with, with the equal weight for, for con contributing to the discussion. I, I, would, I would agree completely. We need more of it. And, uh, and I think that, that Ashbrook does a great job of, of preparing people for it. Yeah, one of the best lines I heard was a mind changed against their will is of the same opinion still. So like, if you're going to yell at someone and try to change their mind like you can't you're not going to change their mind if you force it on them like you just have to be like my my one of the strategies i use with people who i don't think understand the issue as well as they think they do is just like saying like like bringing up points within like that they've brought up and then kind of saying like well what about this and then how about like what would you say to someone who said this 
And it's all about just yeah. trying to like have a conversation and understand where they're coming from as opposed to and, saying and like, just wrong. asking the right probing questions that that kind of gets them to because it is so easy to just parrot, you know, something that you you've read or something that you've always believed without even understanding why you believe it. Um, but if you get the right probing question that makes you kind of stop and think, that's how we start building those bridges so that you know people can can come together again. Yeah, we have a lot more commonality than people like to think because like every like not everyone agrees on everything, but most people agree on some things. And I think that if if we look at the things we we're more similar than different, then we can approach those differences with with a more mutual respect and understanding where the other person's coming from, even if you don't agree with them. I I can't add anything more to that. Um, I I appreciate you taking the time to to talk with me today. I, this was this was great. I I don't often get to have a nice you know sit down conversation with my former students to kind of get caught up with uh, where, with where they've gone. So this was really cool. Yeah, Charles, thank you so much for having me. But before we go, I actually have a quick question for you. Have you you read any good books recently? Ooh, gosh. Um, Yes. Yeah. It, I'm a little bit behind the times with it because it, it came out a couple of years ago, but I just recently finished uh, The Splendid in the Vile from Eric Larson, which is kind of a, a pop history um, type type author, but he's he's just really gripping. I And I can't recommend it enough. Uh, it's all about the first year of the Blitz during World War II, and it focuses on Churchill mm. and Churchill's family and some of his aides. Um, but it's it's such he's such a brilliant writer because it takes he'll take like journal entries and stuff like everything that's in quotes in his story are are like literal quotes uh, from from the documents and stuff that he's researched. But he just turns it into like this thriller of a novel and and you know makes makes it so I couldn't put it down. Um, and now, yeah, I just I just finished that uh, not not too long ago. So if you ever are looking for you know good historical nonfiction that reads like fiction, I uh, I definitely recommend Eric Larson for that. Okay, yeah. great. Thank what you. What about you? Have you you written anything interesting lately? So I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. So I think that I, I've been going through the Game of Thrones series recently, mm -hmm. or the the Dan, uh, Song of Ice and Fire, whatever yeah. it's technically called. But I just started the the last book that's available on that one. So that's what I kind of what I've been sinking my teeth into. But before that, I read um, the first book in the Quintaglio Ascension series, which it's like it sounds really funky, but essentially it's um, if dinosaurs would have been sentient on their own planet like what would happen and it's kind of like a parallel of um like the renaissance and like discovering that the earth isn't flat and that okay. like the sun revolves around so it's kind of just like using the dinosaurs to like as an allegory for humankind mm -hmm. so it was just like a really interesting story because it was basically the same thing that happened in history where you know like certain institutions didn't want things to happen even though they were faced with an irrefutable truth and like how do you approach that with no power so uh, I, I okay yeah all right what is the say the name of it again so the first book was called um farseer and okay. it's it's called um the quintaglio ascension series okay all right oh that's pretty cool yeah so i i didn't read a lot of nonfiction before or like excuse me i didn't read a lot of fiction until after i left ashland so that's kind of like why i'm getting into all these different things well you can't i mean i i've read the the song of ice and fire series um and i'm i'm jealous that you get to go through that for the first time like uh, you know it's, oh it's it, incredible it's such a great, yeah it, it's a it's just one of those things where um i i feel the same way when i find out somebody's watching like breaking bad for the first time or, or the west wing for like, like ah i'm so jealous that you get to you get to have this experience that, that i had a, a while ago and i'll never get to have it again but um yeah, yeah like so certain scenes in the book once you get to them you just think like oh my gosh like that's incredible they're also it's also great where um uh kind of like what you were saying with the the uh the other series that you read 
like it's fantasy, but it reveals truths about human nature and stuff in, in really compelling ways. I, I, I really think uh, um, those kinds of stories that, you know, fiction or not, like it's it's going to there's there's truth there when you have when you have the right author who's, who knows what he's doing. Um, he can uh, he can present some really, really good truth, uh, valuable. Yeah. And, and especially that's powerful, in my opinion, whenever it comes to the negative sides of human nature like the, you know, the desire to like murder and steal and stuff yep. like that. And he just kind of, George R. R. Martin just approaches it like matter of factly. Yeah. And um, I think that that's really powerful to just be forced to to reckon with that. And like, oh, like my favorite character just did this. Like, yep. oh, really? Well, it's so funny too, because like there are, there are like several times in that series where um, like one of the things that I think he does great is show the like realistically, um, and this is kind of like the the idea of like revealing truths through fiction. Institutions matter, and and when you try to buck the system in certain ways, there are consequences for it. Like you you might decide, well, you know, everything else, forget it. I'm just going to do what I feel is right, no matter what. And and you can do that, and there's going to be a consequence for it, whether you like whether you're ready for it or not. Um, and there are just so many times where we're like, he, like, I'm going with the character who's like, no, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm making this choice. And, and like, I understand that it's a difficult choice, but I agree with the character. He's like, no, this is definitely the right thing to do. And then that character dies because of it. And it's like, oh, shoot, yep. you know, like maybe had they done it a little differently, they could have actually succeeded in, in, in a, uh, uh, making the changes that they they wanted to change uh, without it. So, yeah. And that, that makes me really reckon with the change that I want to see in the world, because as you said, like if you buck the system, there are consequences. And this isn't a fairy tale where you can run into the castle and just like kill the one person and then right, the world's better. Right. Like even if you win an election, even if you win a couple elections, like it's still not not that easy and there's this whole like turning of the tide of society and i think that um the the example of the kingdom in game of thrones is a good allegory just to humankind because like there's so many different peoples with competing views and like they might think x because of some experience they had and then that makes them inform their decision on how to move forward and then that decision affects someone else and it just right. yep. how it just yep. goes everywhere and, and i really like how he takes his time and tells the story the way that it should be told instead of just like rushing through things. So yeah. it's not like one book takes 20 years. It's one book takes like 20 months maybe. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again for, for taking all the time to, uh, to talk with me. This was really great. Um, I enjoyed, you know, catching up on all of your achievements and, and directions. Good luck with the, the bar exam coming up and, and with what comes next, I hope you're able to find the, uh, the right position for you. I know you, you're excited to, to keep working with the utility, the public utilities commission. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear, hear what's, what's next for you. And I wish you all the best. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the podcast and, uh, thank you personally. I wouldn't be here without you or at the Ashbrook program. So, um, yeah, good luck with, uh, your new job and with all your future endeavors. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American idea. If you enjoyed this episode, Remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.